Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. I do not believe Joe Biden and or his team mishandled any classified documents. Unfortunately, I believe it's clear Joe Biden and or his team mishandled the messaging, the process and the narrative of this story. It is a story that was leaked two weeks ago, two weeks ago today, probably by somebody in Chicago, probably by the Trump appointee there who Merrick Garland first put in charge of assessing it. This man, Lausch. And it was done with malice aforethought. It was designed to hang there in the air and rough Joe Biden up for a couple of days and then fuzz up Trump's documents theft, maybe linger long enough to give Jim Jordan and Jim Comer and other worms enough fodder to keep their phony House investigations of all things Biden going for another week or two, and then to collapse forgotten into the dustbin of history. And that's all it could do unless the fascists got lucky and could put it into the phony pile of the phony things that they were trying to cobble into a phony impeachment because Biden's ostensible defenders were somehow to make it into a story. Biden's ostensible defenders were the only ones who could make it into a story, and they have. They handed a lazy pudding-brained 21st-century American political media complex so desperate for a democratic scandal that Captain both sidesism himself, Peter Baker, actually wrote a piece Saturday in the New York Times comparing Biden's papers with the Clinton-Lewinsky story. They handed these idiots this thing that fits into the worst possible and most easily digestible of all presidential story templates, the event that looks, with every new drip, 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 less and less like what the president originally said it was. It is still, even if worse literally comes to worst, nothing like the Trump 
stolen nuclear secrets and probable espionage scandal story. Unfortunately, the way they have handled it, this White House has now justified every media outlet that has said all that and will say all that and then add, well, yeah, but... Unfortunately, this White House is absolutely right. Documents innocently found and never missed by the archives in six years and immediately returned, and then a search was invited. That all bears no resemblance at all to Trump's deliberate thievery and legal manipulations to never return any of the documents he stole, the 300 of them. And even though political whores like Oversight Chairman James Comer, are comparing a mouse to an elephant, the White House has made it look like it tried to hide the mouse. And worst of all, the White House has given Trump's apologists and cultists and propagandists something to now trot out every time Trump's espionage is broached. And yes, that something is as phony as a $3 bill. But unfortunately, once again, it's Biden's people who have made it look like they were trying to hide the $3 bill. And first, this White House had to confirm a story leaked to CBS News. Then two days later, it had to change its story to add a newfound document. Then the day after that, it had to change its story again to address a higher page count. Then the day after that, it had to change their story again to address the appointment of a special counsel. Then last Wednesday, it had to change its story again to include another document. Then Thursday, it had to change its story again to include another five documents. And then Saturday, it had to completely change its story to cover its invitation to the Department of Justice to search the president's home and the DOJ's removal of six unidentified items at the invitation of the president. I believed Joe Biden when he said there was no there there because there wasn't and there isn't. And in the non there there space, there have now been seven different stories and If there were seven different stories about how much the president is cooperating, that's the same thing as seven different stories about exactly how much the president donated to charity last year. And if those numbers changed seven times, they would get people scratching their heads. And I don't know who thought this was a good idea, and I'm hoping it wasn't President Biden, because if it wasn't, he can fire everybody who did, and he should do that today. And the president should do something more. Something proactive, because whether he likes it or not, or his press secretary likes it or not, or his advisors like it or not, or you and I like it or not, he has lost control of the narrative, a narrative as bad and as terminally afflicted by whataboutism and both sidesism as the American political media is, so that when they keep saying, you watch... There will be something here. We know we're the omniscient political media and you give them something like this. At some point, it actually kind of stops being their fault and their desperate need for clicks and ratings and self-worth they are not entitled to. And it stops being about their inability to process anything except templates and formula stories. And the problem becomes your own. And the proactive thing President Biden might do pertains less to the investigation of his mice than it pertains to the investigation of Trump's elephants. The most important relevance 
of the materials in Delaware and at the Biden think tank is their impact on the Trump investigation. Because the argument that formed on day one of this in the gelatinous mass that is the hive mind that protects and self-immolates for Trump was that since you can't prosecute a sitting president, well, you shouldn't prosecute Trump either because two laws and that's not fair and deep state and Biden ran on unifying and those other dim-witted, irrelevant catchphrases and brand names the Republicans and the fascists use. I think what President Biden should do, and if he has a better idea, go ahead. This is mine. What I think Biden should do is turn the argument on its head and the narrative on its ear. There is no law that prevents the Department of Justice from prosecuting or considering prosecuting the sitting president or deciding not to prosecute the sitting president and leaving all that to Congress. There is only precedent and departmental policy. President Biden should tell his attorney general to waive that precedent, to suspend that departmental policy. He should say his certitude and confidence that his document saga is inadvertent and innocent and inconsequential is not only intact today, but it is stronger than ever. And that to reassure the country on this, he is volunteering to be subject to the same legal consequences that would face any other citizen. I'm not guilty And moreover, this is how much I'm not guilty. Not only would it completely reverse the momentum of this story and utterly shift the spotlight back to the prosecution of Trump, probably for espionage, but it also wouldn't change a damn thing practically because the only thing you could charge Biden for anyway would be the terrible mismanagement of this story. And since the attorney general does nothing anyway, and it's a slow nothing at that, He's not going to accept a recommendation from anybody to change something. He's not going to accept a recommendation from anybody, even the president, to change departmental policy about prosecuting a sitting president. He doesn't want to do anything past the year 1896. So Biden proposes this and Garland rejects it. And Biden has done his part and then he can eat his cake and keep it too and reestablish that indeed there is No, there, there. Because the question I have not yet heard addressed, let alone answered, is this. Since a sitting president can't be charged, how can a sitting president be cleared? What is the end game of this special counsel? This special counsel, who, by the way, owes his job to Trump. If charges are impossible, what is he doing here? The end game is, well, he turns over anything he finds to exculpatory or convicting, he turns anything he finds over to the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, while at the same time this buttonhead James Comer goes after the president's family. Firstly, the White House or its friends needs to bury Jim Jordan and Jim Comer, and that means a heavy lean on the atrocity of Jordan's negligence in the sexual abuse scandal at Ohio State, and on the on-record charges by Comer's college girlfriend that he hit her and threatened her life. Her name is Marilyn Thomas. Look her up. Dirty these two bastards up, but fast. And most importantly, get control of this out-of-control fire hose of a document story because if it continues to proceed like this, it ends with Comer and Jordan 
and all the other worms using it to impeach the president. I mean, they'll try to impeach him anyway, but right now they have something with what artists call verisimilitude to it. It doesn't have to be real. It only has to look real. And Biden has to take that back, and after the seven different stories, he has to break it into a million pieces. And he damn well better do that, not just for himself, but for the prosecution of Trump, which is the most important part, and for all the rest of us who have defended him since this story broke and who, in a time without nuance, have had to rethread a new needle seven different times in two weeks and who are now getting drip, drip, dripped on, not by scandal or theft or espionage, but by amateurish story management by a guy or the guy's employees, but by a guy who's been doing this since they swore him in as a senator 50 years and 13 days ago, and who bluntly ought to have known goddamned better than this. I mean, the goddamn piece of nothing story is not just going to go away of its own accord. Stop thinking like that. Still ahead. So when they investigated the Supreme Court leak, none of the justices were under oath. So it was just a opinion poll. How many times have we all said this? I was not a drag queen, guys. I was young and I had fun at a festival. Sue me for having a life. By the way, is that quote George Santos or Brett Kavanaugh? Sports. So a month from now, they'll be playing exhibition games at spring training, and chaos, unlike anything we have seen in baseball, will unfold as three titanic rules changes that no player is ready for are introduced all at the same time. Plus, Olbermann's foolproof method for raising batting averages. And utterly fitting, given the lead commentary about the White House and the media, let me tell you about the day George W. Bush's geniuses thought I was on their side, so they tried to send me talking points with which to discredit an Iraq war critic, and instead they wound up revealing all the people within NBC News they knew they could rely on. Things I promised not to tell. That's next. This is Countdown. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Still ahead, say, seen that new Brett Kavanaugh sexual assault film premiered Friday? They're already adding new info into it. And continuing on the subject of White Houses trying to control the narrative, there's the story of the day George Bush's people just knew I was going to slam Iraq war critic Joe Wilson for them, and they wanted to help me with talking points, but they could not remember how to spell my name. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day to Sebastian. He's a handsome little dachshund mix in Brooklyn and Angels for Mistreated Animals, AMA Rescue. He's trying to get him in to see an oncologist. There is an angry-looking melanoma on his jaw and tongue. The good news is dogs do very well with cancer treatments, but you have to know exactly what you're dealing with. So he needs aspirates of his lymph nodes and maybe some organs and chest x-rays, cytology. If you've had a dog with cancer as I have, you know the drill. It's possible they can't do anything for Sebastian, but if they can, let's. You can find Sebastian on his GoFundMe page or on my Twitter feeds. Donate if you can. Retweet if you can't. I thank you, and Sebastian thanks you. Postscripts to the news. Some headlines, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Park City, Utah. They kept it secret until the day before its premiere at the Sundance Festival. Justice, the new Doug Lyman documentary on the sexual assault allegations against Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Now they are re-editing it because as soon as the movie was revealed... New information and tips started to come in, and unlike the FBI, the producers are following up on them. As it is, Justice contains new witness testimony from a classmate about Kavanaugh's assault on Deborah Ramirez at Yale, and new testimony from the same man, Max Steyer, president of the Partnership for Public Service at Yale with Ramirez and Kavanaugh, who says he personally witnessed Kavanaugh assault another woman in exactly the same way. Dateline Washington, the investigation of the Roe v. Wade leak by Supreme Court Marshal Gail Curley, the one that produced nothing except absolute certainty that no leads direct towards any justices nor their spouses. Turns out eh, it was not exactly an investigation. Marshal Curley confirming the justices were all spoken to, but none were under oath. So it was not so much an investigation as it was an opinion poll. And Dateline New York, Congressman George Santos denied he'd ever performed as a drag queen. Then his Wikipedia editing profile turned out to have mentioned, yeah, he was. Then uh, he denied it all again while caught in a fairly standard walking scrum at LaGuardia Airport. Not a drag queen for Bill. He was young and I had fun at a festival. Sue me for having a life. No, it's not how you conduct an interview, but it's the only thing you have when you won't do a real interview, Katara. 
They also caught him in what is believed to be his third different lie about his mother and 9-11. First, he said she escaped the towers that day from her office. Then he said she got sick there with what eventually became the cancer that killed her. Now, her immigration record has turned up, and it shows Santos's mother was not even in the country on 9-11. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, a great honor to have won the Senior Club Championship at Trump International Golf Club, one of the best courses in the country in Palm Beach County, Florida, competed against many fine golfers and was hitting the ball long and straight in a very real way. It serves as a physical exam, only much tougher. You need strength and stamina to win, and I have strength and stamina, and most others don't. You also need strength and stamina to govern, end quote, Trump last night. A, yeah, no, not really. It's freaking golf. B, competed against many fine golfers, all of whom are just standing there off camera smiling like he is. C, it's freaking golf. As to Trump's golf scandal, his tie into the Saudi Arabian blood money tour, Live, talk about log rolling. One-time golfer Greg Norman, now CEO of Live, was asked about the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the behest of Saudi Prince bin Salman. His answer, quote, I think everybody learns from their mistakes. The interview, speaking of mistakes, was by Dan Abrams of News Nation, which is owned by the Nexstar Company. It was promoted by The Hill, which is owned by the Nexstar Company. And Live TV, or Live has just done a TV deal with the CW Network, which is owned by, oddly enough, the Nexstar Company. Hockey took them like three weeks to do it, during which they let popular incumbent coach Bruce Boudreaux who saved the team a year ago, twists slowly, slowly in the wind. But the Vancouver Canucks have finally fired Boudreaux and replaced him with Rick Tockett, who takes the demotion from intermission analyst for the TNT National Hockey League coverage. The Canucks, who were vivisected by everybody in the National Hockey League for making Boudreaux suffer like that, then made a pathetic attempt to save their reputation yesterday by tweeting a graphic reading, Bruce Boudreaux, thank you which is ironic because the team's real message to Boudreaux clearly was a different two-word phrase, but it also ended in you. Thank you, Nancy Faust. And lastly, a month from now, just a month from now, Baseball will just be starting its spring training schedule in Florida and Arizona. And as warm as that makes you feel, this means we will now see the implementation of three new rules. First, a ban on infield shifts so that two fielders have to be on either side of second base as each pitch is thrown. Greetings, baseball's new illegal defense rule. Second, with nobody on base, pitchers will have just 15 seconds to throw a pitch, 20 seconds with somebody on base, or it's a ball. Third, batters have to be in the batter's box no later than eight seconds left on that clock. Well, this will be a breeze. 15 seconds. Kenley Jansen, the reliever now of Boston, 
averaged 26 seconds per pitch last year, and 100 other major league pitchers averaged 20 seconds or more. The infield shift, meanwhile, is designed to create more non-home run offense, but nobody's explained how it's going to make hitters try for singles instead of home runs. Here's a tip. If you want batting averages to go up, do what they did in 1887. This led to the all-time record for highest batting average in a season, not only being shattered, but being shattered by 63 points by Tip O'Neill of the St. Louis Browns. This is what you do. You change the scoring rules so that every walk counts as a hit. Uh, It makes as much sense as trying to change where the fielders stand, how long the pitcher has to throw, and how soon the hitter has to be in the box all at the same time. Baseball. It survived the people who've run it and owned it since the late 19th century. Time now for the Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. LeBron's former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Wait, did that really happen? She was U.N. Ambassador. Anywho, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Wait, did that really happen? Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Anywho, Pompeo says Haley once essentially went around him. Wait, did that really happen too? Anyway, to meet with Ivanka and Kushner about becoming vice president. Haley denies this, saying she, quote, never had a conversation with Jared, Ivanka, or the president about the vice presidentship. Vice presidentship, you say? Have you ever heard that before? Vice presidentship. Search the internet, you'll find that it appears that since the year 1867, the term has been used once. In a 1988 interview with somebody reminiscing about Lyndon Johnson, And the 1867 reference was from a British writer. Surely, Ms. Haley did not mean vice presidentship. She meant vice presidentitude. The runners-up, those who installed the computer-controlled lighting system in the new high school at Wilbraham, Massachusetts, which is outside Springfield, on August 24th, 2021, the software failed. And since that day, all the lights at the high school have been on all the time. They can't figure out how to turn them off. Staffers sometimes go around and unscrew light bulbs from the 7,000 light fixtures in the school in the desperate attempt to not waste energy and money. What's the problem? Well, the company that installed the lights has been sold and merged several times, and the new, 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 new company has had a supply chain issue. When are we getting that off switch in from Brazil? So there it is. You've always wondered what the literal definition of this cliche was. Here it is. The lights are on, but no one's home. Speaking of which, our winner, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. As his Dallas Cowboys were losing an NFL playoff game last night to San Francisco, 19-12, after the Niners had messed with his head in his pregame warmups, Cowboys kicker Brett Maher missed the point after during that snooze fest, and Abbott who uses a wheelchair, thought he had shown a great sense of humor about himself and his team when he tweeted, I swear I can kick as good as the Dallas Cowboys kicker. 
We all laughed and we all had a good time and then about, oh, a thousand people replied, yeah, and I swear he can govern a state as good as you can. Governor Greg, bluntly, he put it on a T for us, Abbott, today's worst person in the world! NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, to the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And on Monday, May 3rd, 2004, my executive producer phoned me at home and said, we got Ambassador Joe Wilson. He'll be on the show tomorrow. Within hours, the communications office of the White House of George W. Bush began a desperate, ceaseless, tireless effort to send me one email with talking points about Ambassador Joe Wilson, which repeatedly, hilariously failed to get through to me because none of them could spell my name correctly. By late in the evening of May the 3rd and throughout the morning of May the 4th, I got calls and forwarded emails from people throughout NBC who had received emails of their own from the Bush White House Communications Office, all of them with attachments addressed to Keith Oberman, without the L, Keith Oberman, with only one N, Kyeth Oberman, Keith spelled wrong, and even Keith Overman with a V. This was actually, truly, the first day I believed I was having an impact on the Bush White House, and also the first day I realized they were incredibly stupid there. Democracy still had a slim chance. The Internet had been operating at more or less its present speed since about 1997 or 1998. My name was all over the Internet in articles about my news career, about my sports career, 
about my previous news career. There were articles I had written. There were books I had written. And these people who were trying to reshape the United States of America into a reactionary, conservative, cruel, xenophobic, semi-authoritarian state were not smart enough to figure out how to spell my name. Just so we know who we are talking about, by this point, Scott McClellan had succeeded the infamous Ari Fleischer as press secretary. His deputies were Dana Perino, who went from being the stupidest person ever to be White House press secretary to being one of the stupidest persons ever to have a show on Fox News. Pamela Stevens, who later wound up as a producer at CNN because political press people are exactly like unemployed football coaches or baseball managers who get TV jobs and then leave the TV jobs to go back onto the field. The communications director was named Dan Bartlett, and there was another communications person there named Nicole Wallace, who has somehow shaken off the stink of working for both George and Jeb Bush and is now considered a darling of MSNBC, even though her only true non-fascist credential is she doesn't like Trump either. The crack White House media team representing the most powerful man in the world in the anxious and foreshadowing years after 9-11, and not one of them could even find anybody else who could spell my name, let alone spell it themselves. More on them in a moment, but I need to explain who Joe Wilson was, if you don't know, and why he was so important. Long before Colin Powell confessed to Tim Russert that he had been lied to by the White House and thus he himself had lied to the United Nations about Saddam Hussein's imaginary weapons of mass destruction, uh, those were the excuses from Bush Cheney for dragging this country into an unnecessary and national soul-destroying war in Iraq with lies and torture and scapegoating and suppression and brutality. Before that, there was Ambassador Joseph Charles Wilson IV, and in 2002, after pressure from the White House, the CIA sent him back to the scene of his first diplomatic posting, the African nation of Niger, to get proof for Bush that Saddam was trying to buy yellow cake uranium there to make nuclear bombses out of. And Wilson quickly found out it was nonsense. And he reported back, and the Bush White House promptly buried his findings, and instead, in the 2003 State of the Union address, just before he started bombing Iraq, George W. Bush said, the British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. It was, and remains, a complete lie. And war occurred because of it. And Joe Wilson called it a complete lie in an op-ed in the New York Times on July 6, 2003. The Iraq war was still at this stage defined by, rah, rah, we're winning, but Saddam's WMD and his biological weapons and his chemical weapons might be over the next hill, and you'd better not criticize what we're doing, or maybe you're a terrorist. Joe Wilson said the emperor had no clothes. In 2003, he was an American hero of the highest order. A week later, a Dick Cheney flunky named Scooter Libby and a deputy secretary of state named Armitage began a campaign to punish Joe Wilson and discredit him. They leaked to a dyspeptic and hate-filled columnist named Robert Novak, who is now working in the bureau in hell, that Wilson's wife was an undercover agent for the CIA and that her name was Valerie Plame and that the pair of them were dirty Democrats and moreover it was Plame 
who had urged that her own husband be sent to Niger to deliberately not find the uranium or the Saddam Hussein signed receipts or whatever Bush expected to find there. The Bush White House destroyed the career of, risked the life of, and ruined several assignments and contacts of one of this country's own secret CIA agents just to make her husband look bad. So in May 2004, when Joe Wilson wrote a book about all this crap and he inexplicably wanted to go on MSNBC, which was still at that point trying to be more conservative than Fox News, and wanted to go on my little-watched show, which was considered the neutral outlier on a network full of Joe Scarbrows and Michael Savages, this was a happy surprise for us, which was followed by this wonderful flailing effort by the Bush White House to send me talking points about Joe Wilson before I interviewed him. They not only could not spell my name, but they were utterly convinced that my interview was designed to discredit Joe Wilson. The talking points, which eventually got to me from Assistant Press Secretary Pamela Stevens, consisted of six items over two pages. The headings were as follows. One, political motivation. This was about Wilson calling Dick Cheney a lying SOB about a year after the Niger trip. I couldn't figure this one out. Dick Cheney was a lying SOB. That's how I got to be vice president. Two, Gingrich spokesman calls allegations about alleged March 2003 meeting completely false. This cited Newt Gingrich and his people as if they were good sources as opposed to the punchlines they already were back then in 2004. Talking point number three, McClellan points out political objective and four, McClellan addresses accusations. These were quotes from the press secretary. This man suddenly quit that job two years later, 2006, and confessed he had repeatedly lied for George W. Bush and the others, and now he just couldn't take it anymore. And he would come on my show and give one of the best atonement interviews I've ever heard. It went on for 45 minutes. Five, Fleischer says VP office did not request trip. A quote from McClellan's predecessor, who, unless he is talking about baseball, you should assume he's lying. Plus, he might be lying about baseball. And finally, six, statement by George J. Tennant, July 11, 2003. This was a quote from the CIA director, which they thought was their home run, and it basically consisted of this. Bush never saw that report. That was it. There are three punchlines to this story. Number one, I don't know why the Bush communications office assumed I was there to take down Joe Wilson. But the moment I saw these talking points, any lingering doubt I had that they were not all lying bastards down there was erased. I used the talking points in my interview, all right. I read them out loud to Joe Wilson, and he rebutted each of them with impeccable charm and elegance. He and Valerie Plame became regular guests on my show and would beat the crap out of George Bush with aplomb right through the morning of January 20th, 2009. Second punchline. A year earlier, a supply clerk with a maintenance company on the ground in Iraq was captured. Private Jessica Lynch, the military, and the Bush administration immediately put out the story that she was being tortured by them evil Iraqi Saddam Hussein doctors. There was the glorious rescue of Jessica Lynch, which followed, and the parades and the you-better-not-question-this-story period, which lasted about six weeks, until a Toronto newspaper printed a substantially different account. That Lynch was rescued 
from an Iraqi hospital and a U.S. military team in good faith went in to extract her, but that this was all arranged not by some sort of part of intelligence or U.S. operations or the allies, but by the Iraqi doctors, some of whom sneaked over to American lines at great danger and said, one of your soldiers is hurt and we don't have the right equipment to help her. Could you swing by and pick her up? I reported that version on MSNBC, and the next day, as I was still taking my coat off, my boss, Phil Griffin, called me in and said that the head of NBC News and the president of NBC, Bob Wright, had been on the phone all morning to him, insisting I should be fired for implying that the Bush administration had lied. Griffin proudly said he had talked them into letting me get away with just apologizing to the troops. I, I can't even read this with a straight face now, 20 years later, apologizing to the troops who rescued her. I must credit myself, when my brain was full then, that I did some quick thinking. The demand was comical nonsense journalistically. On the other hand, if I agreed to apologize to, okay, the troops who rescued her, whoever you want, I would get the chance to tell the whole real story of Jessica Lynch again. So I did. The apology was 15 seconds, and while unnecessary, was sincere. I didn't want to make the troops look bad. They didn't know anything about this crap. I made sure, however, that the retelling of the true Lynch rescue story took about two and a half minutes. That was in June of 2003. So why, as of May of 2004, the Bush White House thought I was sympathetic to them, I'll never know, or why they bothered with me, I'll never know. Which brings me to the last point. The unintended side effect with the long-term impact of all those failed White House emails with my name misspelled was that this Pamela Stevens person promptly forwarded them to people around NBC whom she considered friendly to George W. Bush. One of them was Tom Brokaw's assistant, Another was in the office of future NBC News president Steve Kappas. And the final one was to some guy named George Uribe. And so I found out all the people in the Bush administration's we like them list at NBC News who I should avoid under all circumstances. Let's see. Brokaw's assistant, so no Brokaw. Somebody in Kappas's office, so no Kappas. And this guy, George Uribe. And George Uribe turned out to be a guy hired by MSNBC from Fox News to go work for George Scarborough. He fell out of favor with Joe Scarborough, and I guess he didn't henchman enough for Joe's taste. And his influence fell to a guy I, I don't think I've mentioned him to you yet. Chris Licht? <laughs> Countdown has come to you from the studios of Olderman Broadcasting Empire World Headquarters in the Sports Capsule Building in New York. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. 
Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Tony Kornheiser. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 748th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.